Well, welcome everybody to Upbeats. We're in November and I'm looking at Haz, who's wearing a Hogwarts t-shirt and some kind of animal ears. Fox ears. Of course they are. They're necessary. I just feel, even in our like little high chats before we start recording, I just feel like we need an extra boost of pep and zest in this time of year. <laughs> and I sure ain't bringing it to the party, so thank you for your ears. You're, we're currently via Zoom at the moment because you've been glamorously invited off to uh, a concert in Swansea, is that right, in Avatawa? <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't call it glamorous, but sure, let's go with that, let's call it that. Everything you do is touched by glamour has. Thank you, John. And you're wearing the shirt. I am. I'm wearing my standard shirt and and it's all, you, as usual, you're looking at my rather impressive bookcase, which I think, you know, is your classic Zoom background, isn't it? It's perfect. And we're both standing up because we both need that energy. I just we need like, that pep. Yeah, the, the nights always feel longer. Like, why does the night start at 4pm at the moment <laughs> and then doesn't end until like 9am? And then everything's just a little bit soggy outside. It's grey. It's miserable. So, and I just there's a lot of animosity in the air, or maybe not animosity, but that feeling of I don't know uncertainty. We are going to delve into that uncertainty in the sense of looking out music of protest and of political statement, because part of that uncertainty is to do with everybody taking to the streets and just wondering what what's coming next. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there seems to be a world in crisis, or in particular crisis at the moment. Um, so we thought that we could just look at how music has been used over the eras to support protest and to make political statements. And I suppose it does it in three different ways. Um, sometimes it's written actually as protest or in protest and that's part of its conception so we think of Beethoven's Eroica Symphony or Sibelius's Finlandia can you think of any others? I mean I'm trying to think of some um, quartet for the end of time yes the Messiaen do you know with the Messiaen he was in the Görlitz uh, prisoner camp and got together with uh, a violinist a cellist and a clarinet player to make this uh, otherworldly quartet and mm. the prison guard was apparently so moved that he forged a stamp out of a potato to smuggle these guys well not smuggle but assure their safe release um, I just love the thought of a prison guard sort of oh my gosh taking that risk and trying to get this stamp out of a potato yeah oh. I mean we could have also said pretty much half of Shostakovich's work Yes, and that's brazen. I think that's, I look at that now, having, you know, looking back in time and thinking, how did no one know that he was on our side all along? (laughs) The little guy, you know? Yes, it's interesting. The ambiguity is what makes uh, Shostakovich's work so enduring, right? And how Mm. we can sort of come back to it at different levels uh, in so many different ways. So that's music written as protest right Mm. from the get-go. Then there's music that is kind of in the moment, spontaneous, uh, just used as a symbol of protest. I'm thinking of soldiers playing on a a kind of a makeshift piano in Chechnya or in Damascus or Rostoprovich at the Berlin Wall in 1989. Uh, That's a beautiful moment, him playing the Bach cello suites from memory, just surrounded by this huddle of people underneath the graffiti of Mickey Mouse. Oh... Thank you. 
And then, of course, there's music that has been appropriated after the event for a particular political cause. Mm-hmm. And I thought we might start with some music from that particular genre. And yeah, I'm right. thinking of Va Pensiero from uh, Verdi's Nabucco from Nebuchadnezzar. Have you, have you seen that opera? No, never. My Verdi is quite limited to like La Traviata. That's it. <laughs> I loved how, the, how you said Verdi. Though, with that little <laughs> I lovely, know, right? lovely lilt. We're going to sing the Dies Irae. <laughs> so I was interested to read a little bit more about this chorus of the Hebrew slaves, oh, which of yeah. course has a particular connotation uh, for today as we record. Uh, and it's interesting how, in a sense, it doesn't matter who the people are that are being depicted as oppressed in the situation because it's the oppression that we can all relate to and pick up as a cause. Um, But this chorus was so effective that people wanted after the event for it to be made into the Italian national anthem as a symbol of the risorgimento of of Italy just coming together as one unified country. And um, I suppose there's a bit of an irony now that it was then adopted as Northern Italy's official hymn and the southerners thought oh well we're not having any of that so oh. in fact now it's a symbol in the 2000s of division <laughs> rather does it than... go um do, 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 do. Mm. oh i think of the wrong one no it's like that but just more of a dotted rhythm let me tell you why because you've got the interesting mix of a, a waltz like feeling underneath you yeah and then above those dotted rhythms which are the rhythms of a march and it's in four four for the chorus oh. so it has both a lilt but also these dum buddy oh, you know yeah yes. and it could not really be more cool. italian actually with these huge leaps and it's so italian in its flavor so verdi so verdi let's have a listen Apparently it was played at his funeral, or rather, people just broke spontaneously into this this chorus. At now his that's something I can get on board with. That's something I love—just a plaintive sort of calonlan coming over when people are together or just standing in a crowd. I love that. I love that whole feeling, and it's it's like a collective mourning that they all everyone grieves together. And it's wonderful when it's spontaneous like like that isn't it that it just sort of emerges from people's musical memory and and just feels absolutely right for the collective in that moment so actually that's one of my choices for this week was this idea of collective mourning and using music as a way to say we're all on the same page we're all feeling the same thing here and you're you are heard so Mm. in 2015 uh president barack obama uh, in my opinion the best one uh famously sung 
an acapella version of Amazing Grace during a sermon, um, well, actually a eulogy he was delivering for Reverend Clementa Pickney, um, who was shot dead along with eight members of the congregation in Emmanuel African Methodist and Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And sometimes when you have no words, I think being able just to break into song is is beautiful and mm. lovely and sort of brings you home, brings you home to church. Um, mm. And suddenly it makes this huge colossal power in the West, this president of the United States, make him seem like he's just someone who's really just deeply moved by this tragedy and invites mm. people to sing along with him. And I just think it's so poignant and so beautiful that I've actually chosen his version of Amazing Grace. Amazing <laughs> Grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I Yeah, so that's just a perfect example, isn't it, of how music can fill the gap that words leave. Because often when we're protesting or making a statement, um, we're fed up of empty rhetoric. And that's the perfect invitation for music to take up a role of direct emotional outrage or expression of whatever kind. Yeah. Um, beautiful. Thanks for choosing that, Has. You're welcome. I enjoyed it and I particularly enjoy the free flow of that as well because it's traditionally written in three, but it's the kind of thing that anyone can sing along to and, you know, nudge the person next to you and suddenly you're joining in as well. And there's a beautiful Aretha Franklin version of Amazing Grace, which hopefully we can maybe slip in later because it's just so lovely. And again, here's this huge, amazing, soulful pop star who can just bring us all home, bring us to church um, with just, what you know, two words. I love Aretha Franklin. Let's use that to see us out at That'd the end be a of this nice, Yeah, a joyful ending. So what have we got to delve into now, if not Amazing Grace? Well, let's stay in America, I think. And uh, this is also a very poignant moment, recorded in 1939 by Billie Holiday, the black jazz singer who had this very particular voice, you know, completely inimitable. Mm. And she decided to take this poem written by uh, actually a Jewish intellectual uh, called Strange Fruit. And it was about black lynchings. And it's really quite explicit. I mean, blood on the leaves, blood on the root, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. And it goes on to speak about, you know, a twisted mouth and bulging eyes. It's, it's mm. uh, very visual and eventually the burning flesh. So really, really powerful lyrics. And it's a very stark recording with just her plaintive voice, some trumpet, uh, 
piano and it's short but all the more poignant for it. Southern trees bear strange fruit blood on the leaves and blood at the root black bodies swinging in the southern breeze strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees it's so visceral and so it's almost it gives you the opposite of goosebumps i don't know what that is but when you just think oh it's it's so you can imagine the scene so clearly and it's mm. written so beautifully probably by people who were oppressed so mm. i think you get groups and pockets of people who know what it's like to suffer and when they put that pen to paper it's it comes across so heavily that for the rest of us i think we're listening to it and thinking my gosh that's that's deep that's a lot it it is a lot just because the tone of her voice yeah. for a start you know apart from the words which are so hard hitting but just the simple mournful tone of her voice I don't know it just really gets under the skin doesn't it yeah um what was interesting was that when she first began singing that live uh it was at a cafe a sort of a regular jazz venue and the promoter there insisted that she sung Strange Fruit at the end of the set in the dark with a single spotlight on her face. No waiters were allowed to move. There oh could be gosh. no hubbub. So it would just be this this final, very moving moment with yeah. her in the spotlight and just, yeah, reminding people of the suffering. Oh, my gosh. I can't imagine being in the, in the crowd that first time hearing yeah. that. I remember hearing it. It's almost like an anti-encore in its way. Yes. And those are great in themselves, aren't they? When the people come in with a, just a nice, gentle way to come out. But some, when someone comes and sings like that, with such a message at the end of a show, you would go away thinking about that for a, a good while, I think. Yes. And it was taken up by the anti-lynching movement and copies of it were sent to senators. And there's a whole interesting, well, set of debates where the senators in the South filibustered and tried to block the anti-lynching protest but ultimately obviously were defeated so i think perhaps on to something a little bit more uplifting for this is the upbeats podcast oh my gosh i know i was just sitting here crying feeling so out of it it's rainy outside listening to this really poignant music have you got anything to lift our spirits please please i i have guys as it happens god uh, thanks to Frédéric Chopin, who wrote this Polonaise in A-flat. Um, and when he played it to his partner, George Sand, she said, oh, this feels like a, a symbol, heroic, a heroic symbol of the French Revolution, which had happened, you know, just a generation before. And there was this ongoing sense of unrest and the springtime of the people. And yeah, she, she heard this and nicknamed it heroic and and it's stuck just before we listen to it i think 
as is often the case, there is an irony here because Chopin actually dedicated this polonaise to his good friend, a German. And this German was a banker who loved music. And the interesting thing was that this heroic polonaise was then used, and rightly so, in, in Warsaw at the outbreak of the Second World War, as a daily morale-boosting broadcast mm. um, for the people. So every day people would, you know, just huddle around their radio sets and just listen to this piece for a, a glimpse of hope. joyful. I'm so glad you played that. And not just lift the mood, I love the how it's, again, the dotted rhythms and the march-like qualities of it. It's still a protest, but it's almost a smiling one. You've got to love a good polonaise, right? Polonaise. <laughs> we don't have enough polonaises in our life, I think, yeah, particularly not in this contemporary era. Um, but Chopin was a master of them. And yes, it combines the spirit of a march with a uh, a folk song, doesn't it? Mm. And it's easily, well, I say easily hummable, but if you heard that in the morning, you'd have it in your head, wouldn't you? For the rest of the day. Yes, it's up there with Vapentiero as something you can hum or approximate in the bath, I think. Approximate, yeah. That's a good yeah. word for me. But yeah, yeah, you'd have it in your head and you'd. it's a good way of keeping morale. And also, if you were to hear someone else humming it, maybe you could have a little moment of, aha, we're going to be okay. <laughs> yes. Well, I'll join in with that. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, technically challenging for the pianist not not amazingly hard I've had a go at it in my former pianistic life and it, it is achievable but um achievable that's such a good word for it it is playable for sure but, for me personally yeah, okay. given hey, my limitations me, I wasn't allowed into my grade two exam I wasn't entered because Mrs Walters wasn't convinced I'd put in the work so could I play it probably not but for you achievable I'll say not yet has, not okay. yet. I'll, I'll keep working. Let's, have you got anything upbeat for us to listen to? So I do have something that's slightly more upbeat, but still it's kind of, I'm not going to say dirge. It, it's not dirge at all. It's just slower paced, but it is joyful. Um, so this is Elgar's Enigma variations. Nimrod, oh, which has what's become, coming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's become this sort of beacon of light that whenever I hear it, maybe because I've always done the sort of the concerts around November 11th um, and Rem Remembrance Sunday, that I associate this piece purely with the ending of a war. So even though that's not what it was intended to be written for, you probably know more. Do you know why the Enigma variations were written? Because I don't. It wasn't to do with uh, wartime, as it turns out. It was to do with uh, Elgar just commemorating each of his friends in a variation and writing for them. But you're oh. absolutely right that Nimrod has just this 
anthemic quality to it that it's often taken out from that set of variations and appropriated for various different political statements. In fact, we ended the last podcast, as some people might remember, with the West Eastern Divan playing. Yes, yeah. Um, Which version would you like us to play? Well, I don't have a particular favourite, but I know that you feel very strongly in a positive way about Adrian Bolt. Sir Adrian, I mean, he had such, uh, uh, yeah, a close connection to the composer and uh, such a feeling for that particular balance of nostalgia and purpose Mm. that was in Elgar's writing. So I always go back to him as an initial benchmark. I mean, there have been so many wonderful recordings since, but shall we have a listen to Sir Adrian? feels like you should stand up because it feels like an anthem and whenever I hear it I feel like oh I'm looking around like should we be standing but it's it's not an anthem it's just one that we've adopted to signify peace and big I, I guess peaceful closings and I love how it's broken beyond the borders of these shores and has been used in that way internationally mm. and globally it's up there with Beethoven's Ode to Joy from the Ninth Symphony in that respect isn't it It also reminds me of a similar sort of thing that's been used by people singing World in Union, which is of Holst's Planet Suite. So Jupiter, that beautiful tune that we all know and love, having some words set to it, it suddenly transcends it and it becomes an anthem, an anthem of peace. I vow to thee my country. That's it. I knew you'd know the words. It feels somehow Welsh, doesn't it? Or is that just me putting a lens on it? No, I like that, John. You can say that anytime. I do feel it sounds Welsh. It's ours now. Okay, we've just claimed it. And why not? Because we've been talking about how anybody really can take a powerful piece of music and appropriate to their to their cause. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we've probably given quite a good spread uh, for people to just think and ponder from Billie Holiday through to Elgar. Um, we promised we would see people out with some... Aretha Franklin. Amen. 